what does that mean for the Syrian Kurdish faction with whom uh, we have been partnered against ISIS? They've been uh, terrific partners. They suffered 10,000 casualties fighting ISIS. I do not diminish their contribution, but, but they had their own interest in fighting ISIS. They were not doing it as a favor to the United States. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia. In 2011, Syrian protests against the Assad regime escalated into a long and complex conflict between the Syrian government, backed by Russia and Iran, and rebel groups backed by the United States, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. Diplomatic efforts have been unsuccessful, as the Syrian regime has been accused multiple times of using chemical weapons in recent years. To date, over 400,000 people have been killed in Syria, fueling millions of Syrian refugees and internally displaced people. In this episode, we will cover how the conflict in Syria has evolved and discuss the U.S. strategy in Syria, including its shortcomings and how cooperation with Russia and Turkey may be key to better results. Joining me today is former U.S. Ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford. After finishing a 30-year career with the Peace Corps in the U.S. Department of State in 2014, Ambassador Ford is currently Kissinger Senior Fellow at the Yale Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, Ambassador Ford, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Um, to start us off, could you just give us a overview of who the major players are um, that are involved in the cur- current Syria crisis? Are they non-state, domestic, international actors? One of the things which makes Syria so so very challenging is that there there are so many different actors. Uh, some of them are Syrian, uh, the Syrian government, but also a variety of non-state Syrian actors that include uh, pro-government militias, uh, opposition uh, militias, and uh, armed opposition militias. And then there are so many international states involved in Syria now, ranging from uh, Turkey uh, to Russia. The United States has armed forces uh, deployed into Syria now. Uh, and then there are, in addition, there are uh, foreign non-state actors like the Lebanese Hezbollah uh, is present in Syria, uh, and there are pro-Iranian militias deployed into Syria, uh, Shia militias paid financed by Iran, and then you have the Israeli Air Force routinely launching airstrikes against uh, Iranian targets in Syria. And it's one of the things that makes finding a way to a ceasefire and finding a way to a political settlement so difficult. You mentioned all of these actors. Could you, like, it seems like that there really are a lot. Is there like a way that they're related to each other? Are some of these like fighting on the same side or do they all seem like independently with their own interests? Well, they all have their own interests, either state interests in the case of governments or interests connected to their non-state organizations like Hezbollah or these uh, militias financed by Iran that I mentioned. Um, The civil war in Syria 
if you, to take a really 100,000 uh, foot view uh, looking down, it's, it's basically now between the Syrian government and its allies on the ground, that would be Russia and Iran and the pro-Iranian forces, against the opposition, which is largely supported by Turkey. Uh, and then there's a third actor, which is the American-backed uh, Syrian YPG Kurdish militia, some Arab militias affiliated with that Syrian Kurdish uh, YPG militia. So YPG is the name, it's the acronym in Kurdish. Uh, and there are American forces. So you could think of it as roughly three-way contrast between Syrian government, Turkey, and traditional elements of the Syrian armed opposition, which include extremist militants, and the American-backed Syrian Democratic Forces composed mostly of a particular Syrian Kurdish faction, uh, the YPG, and some associated Arab militias. That's about the, the simplest way I can explain. And from what I remember, ISIS was um, a major source of anguish in the area as well. Um, is ISIS still operating and a major source of uh, part of the tension? And how do actors feel about um, ISIS? In the area? ISIS lost its last territory in eastern Syria. The last foothold it had of any territory in Syria was in the eastern part of the country, and it lost that final remaining uh, foothold, territorial foothold, uh, two years ago in uh, March of 2019. President Trump hailed it at the time as a huge victory. Um, there are still ISIS elements running around, uh, mostly in central Syria, uh, in areas that the Syrian government, the Russians, and the Iranians control, and some in eastern Syria, close to the Iraq border, areas that are under the control of the Americans, uh, and these uh, Syrian democratic forces I mentioned, composed mainly of a of a Syrian Kurdish militia and associated Arab um, militia allies. So, but the the remaining elements of ISIS are small. We're talking about like little bands of maybe 15, 20 guys at most. They do ambushes on the roads sometimes, uh, roadside bombs. Um, they might ambush a checkpoint uh, and, and they do kill soldiers, uh, Syrian soldiers in particular, that killed a Russian general. Um, and so there's there's like little um, hit and run attacks and, and it's kind of a low level insurgency. A February 2021 Pentagon Inspector General report concluded that ISIS uh, is largely defeated it has lost huge financial resources because it doesn't control territory and can't tax, can't skim off oil money. Uh, and it's not able to attack targets outside of Syria from Syria. That is to say, people in Syria can't plan, can't organize, can't launch attacks against, say, Europe, as it did uh, with the attacks in Paris, for example, or in Brussels. Um, uh, or against uh, us in North America. So that's good. 
Um, it's largely contained, therefore, from an American perspective, um, but it is not totally eliminated. So to kind of shift and talk more about U.S.-specific strategy in Syria, um, before we jump in, can you give our listeners a brief overview of what U.S. strategy in Syria has been? For example, um, what the Obama administration policy was and whether the Trump administration deviated or stuck by it? The American strategy on Syria uh, under the Obama administration uh, was long on rhetoric, but much shorter on action. Uh, in particular, uh, at the beginning of the uprising in the spring of 2011, uh, we urged the Syrian government and the protest movement uh, to open a dialogue. Interestingly, the protest movement had no real leadership. It was a very flat uh, hierarchy and that helped it. It was hard for the Syrians government their secret police to arrest the leaders of the protest movement because there really weren't any. Um, but on the other hand, it was impossible to negotiate with the protest movement because, again, there weren't really any leaders who would represent it, who would be able to deliver, uh, say, an end to the protest. Uh, there really wasn't anyone who could stop it either. Uh, it was a conundrum. By 2012 and 2013, the Obama administration's policy was to get the opposition, political opposition, which had sort of formed a leadership in exile with tenuous roots inside the country's protest movement and opposition, but to get that political opposition to negotiate uh, with the Syrian government and produce a national unity, temporary transitional government. Uh, there was an agreement signed between Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov with the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon uh, on June 30th, 2012. Listeners can look it up. Uh, it's called the Geneva One Communique, and that called for this national unity transition government achieved through negotiation between Syrians, uh, but those negotiations never happened. And so the war uh, actually got nastier and expanded. By 2015, uh, the Islamic State had become such a threat, uh, had killed American hostages, notably James Foley and, and others. Uh, and President Obama's attention, his administration's attention, shifted away from trying to get a negotiation between the Syrian government and the Syrian opposition. It shifted then to destroying ISIS. And the Obama administration, which was having no luck getting a negotiation on uh, a transition government in Damascus, uh, their attention shifted really entirely to fighting ISIS. Um, and that continued under President Trump. And so the Americans have basically set aside any hope of a, of a transition government uh, replacing Assad uh, over any kind of foreseeable future. And we're sort of left now with this odd policy where we hold territory in eastern Syria, we hold oil wells. Syria doesn't have big oil fields. It's not Saudi Arabia. It's not Kuwait. Uh, it's not the United Arab Emirates, but it has some oil, small amounts. And we're holding that oil, and we won't give it back to Damascus 
until Damascus releases some political prisoners and it allows in uh, humanitarian aid into the remaining pockets of uh, opposition-held Syria. They're sort of nebulous demands, you know, which prisoners to be released, how much aid, um, who would do it. It's all very nebulous. And we also have sanctions on the government in Damascus. And all for this point of sort of trying to get a political reform in Damascus, which is ill-defined. And so it's not a surprise. We're not getting anywhere. So I guess one of my questions is, why did the U.S. choose to support the Kurds? What advantages did this alliance offer? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, at the end of 2014, uh, as ISIS was expanding and it had captured places in Iraq like Mosul and Fallujah and Ramadi, and it captured places in Syria like the provincial capital of Raqqa and uh, Dedazor, uh, in the center and in the southeastern part of the country. Uh, then it was moving north towards the Turkish border and ran into some heavy resistance led by this Syrian Kurdish militia faction, the one I mentioned. It's called YPG, which stands for, in Kurdish, Kurdish acronym, for People's Protection Force. And they were putting up a heavy fight in uh, Kurdish communities up north along near, very near the Turkish border. And the Americans, I don't think, knew a whole lot about the YPG, but they could see they were good fighters and they were, they were holding out. And so the Americans began to give them uh, air support, combat air support, and, and turned the tide, especially starting in uh, uh, early 2015 in a, a small town on the Turkish border called Kobani. Uh, the Americans then began to send arms. Turkey was furious because this YPG militia has direct organic contact. It's not even contact, it's relations with the Kurdish Workers' Party, which is a Turkish-Kurdish uh, group uh, categorized as a terrorist organization in Turkey, but also in the United States and in the European Union. Uh, and the Turks essentially said, you are helping one terrorist group fight another terrorist group. The American response was, well, uh, they're good. They're good fighters. They're brave. They're organized. They have a clear chain of command. They can, you know, a, a major or a colonel can issue instructions and the fighters in the, the squads and the platoons implement the orders that come from above. You know, where did they get that discipline? Fighting the Turks. Um, and and we they're good fighters against ISIS, and we need them. And the Americans essentially blew off the the Turkish concerns about this. That uh, Turkish indignation continues to this day, and the Turks' big concern is that under an American military umbrella, and there is an American Air Force no-fly zone over eastern Syria, there has been since 2015, under that American umbrella, this YPG militia and its associated political party are setting up a state, um, a small state, a statelet, if you will, with its own administration, manages schools, uh, manages uh, local economic uh, development. Uh, of course, it operates a security force, which the Americans are backing. It has its own secret police. Uh, and this little statelet is being set up, and the Turks are worried that Turkish Kurds will gravitate towards it and thereby threaten Turkish 
territorial integrity. So my question, I guess, now is, what is, is this relationship between the U.S. and the YPG or this group sustainable? I know the U.S. has, like, made it a big deal that it does not negotiate with terrorists. And yet, as you said, it seems like that they're helping one terrorist org fight another. So what is the future of this relationship? Well, um, two things. First, um, to your listeners that are interested in this, um, they should uh, Google Special Operations Forces General Syrian Democratic Forces, and they will find a video of an interview with a two-star American general in command of the special forces uh, operating in that part of the Middle East, where he talks about how the Americans insisted the YPG rename itself, um, essentially trying to sort of hide the connection with the PKK. Um, the interview, I was, I was stunned that a two-star general would speak about this so openly in public, but it's worth seeing. Um, the name change doesn't hide the connection to the PKK. So the, the uh, Kurdish Workers' Party, the group that's on the terrorism list in Turkey, United States, and Europe. Is it sustainable? Uh, in the short term, the Turks don't want a full break with the United States. Say that again. In the short term, the Turks don't want a full break with the United States. Uh, but there are a lot of issues aggravating bilateral relations. On the Turkish side of the ledger, the American connection to this YPG militia would probably be at the top of the list. Um, on the American side, there are issues that include uh, Turkish acquisition of uh, Russian surface-to-air missiles, the S-400 system, for example, and uh, Turkish behavior in the eastern Mediterranean where it's um, uh, confronting Greece over offshore oil fields and gas fields. Um, Turkish uh, repression at home, President Erdogan is becoming more and more uh, authoritarian in his governance. So uh, the bilateral relations are not good, but I don't think they want a full break. The Biden administration is therefore hoping to maintain the relationship with this Syrian Democratic Force, AKA the YPG, uh, and if anything, they're doubling down. They have um, been expanding airstrips in uh, the eastern part of Syria, which they use uh, to bring people and material supplies in. Uh, they patrol in areas up along the Turkish border. There is no ISIS up along the Turkish border with Syria. The ISIS pockets, these hit-and-run gangs that I talked about, are much farther south, more than 100 miles farther south. The Americans are up there patrolling, basically to show their support for this YPG-run statelet that I mentioned. And you wrote a great foreign affairs article about U.S. strategy in Syria, and I kind of want to bring that into our conversation. If, if I'm correct, you said that U.S. should be relying more heavily on Turkey and Russia um, with regards to containing ISIS in Syria. And so with that said, Turkey and I... Turkey and Russia have not always shown themselves to be the most reliable of international actors. So how and why should we trust them um, to bring stability to Syria? Well, you're right. Russia and Turkey have not always been the most reliable uh, partners 
I shouldn't even say partners, they're reliable actors on the international stage. By the way, the Iranians could say that about the Americans when Trump pulled us out of the 2015 nuclear agreement. So um, I don't think there's any international actor, including the United States, I underline that, um, that everyone would say is reliable. That's the first point. Instead of reliability, I think it's much more important to look at a state's core interests because a state will adhere to those. Russia's interest in Syria is that the government in Damascus survive. Say that again. Core Russian interest in Syria is that the government in Damascus survive. It is not in Russia's interest that ISIS take over Syria. Just the opposite. They want the government in Damascus to be in control and to extend its control over the remaining parts of the country occupied by American soldiers in the east or Turkish soldiers in little parts of the north. If that is the Russian interest, then they can take over the areas where the Americans are and they can fight ISIS. It's not in Russia's interest that ISIS survive in eastern Syria because ISIS fights the government in Damascus. As I mentioned earlier, they kill Syrian soldiers in hit-and-run attacks in central Syria. The Russians will probably have to send in more forces. I don't think they have enough there now to take on the additional security requirements in eastern Syria, but that's the Russians' problem. They can send in the forces. As for Turkey, again, uh, unreliability, for sure. But what is their core interest? I talked before about how they perceive the statelet under the YPG militia to be a threat to Turkey's territorial integrity. The Turks are very nervous about their own Turkish-Kurdish population. So if they can be assured that the statelet in northeastern Syria under the American umbrella is not going to come into existence, uh, the deal then needs to be that they, in return, shut off the border so that extremists cannot move back and forth between Syria and Turkey. And the Turks have played a dirty game in the past with that, allowing extremists to move back and forth more or less freely. I think our negotiation with the Turks will be difficult. Erdogan is a very difficult player. Um, but the deal essentially has to be verifiable closure of that border uh, in return for the Americans withdrawing the military umbrella over the statelet. Um, and we have ways that we could work with the Turks to verify that the border really and truly is shut. So this change in policy seems like it would be a major shift from the current U.S. strategy in Syria. So what would be the effects of such a policy on tensions in the region? What would happen to the Kurds if the U.S. were to withdraw their military um, from the statelet area? And would Iran, who is currently an ally of Russia, be empowered by such a move? I think it would be a big change in policy, and it would be a very rational change. Um, I am adhering more and more to um, a sort of realist school of foreign policy thought. Um, people like uh, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt at Harvard and um, Patrick Porter over in Britain, um, Stephen Vertheim, uh, people who say it's time for the Americans uh, to retrench a little bit 
and uh, spend less on military operations in places that are not of key vital interest. Syria is not a key American national security interest. Our biggest interest there now is we don't want Islamic extremists to launch attacks against us from Syria. As I mentioned before, the Pentagon 2000, uh, February 2021 report was very clear that ISIS has lost that capability inside Syria. Um, could it reconstitute? Yes. Does it need to be contained further um, and fought? Yes. Do the Americans have to do it? No. Uh, the Russians can do it. Syrian government can do it. They have a core interest themselves in doing it. Um, what does that mean for the Syrian Kurdish faction with whom uh, we have been partnered against ISIS? They've been uh, terrific partners. They suffered 10,000 casualties fighting ISIS. I do not diminish their contribution, but, but they had their own interest in fighting ISIS. They were not doing it as a favor to the United States. They were doing it to eject ISIS from their communities up in northern Syria, near the Turkish border. They were not doing it as a favor. They had their own interest in doing it, and we helped them. It was a marriage of convenience, if you will. Uh, but that does not mean we owe them a long-term alliance. Uh, that would be a, a complete misreading of American interest. Um, for those who say that uh, we would suffer a credibility hit were we to withdraw and leave the Syrian Kurds, my only response is that uh, I doubt very much that American allies in, say, uh, the Far East, who are concerned about the rise of China, are going to doubt American commitment because we withdraw a thousand soldiers from eastern Syria or NATO allies um, who are looking uh, at uh, Russian intervention, perhaps in a place like the Baltic states. I doubt very much they're going to draw conclusions about American likely uh, responses because of what we do with a thousand soldiers in eastern Syria. They're going to be much more concerned about what are the Americans actually doing on the ground in the Baltics or in the Far East. Um, what does it mean for the Syrian Kurds? They will have to negotiate an agreement with Damascus. Will they get full autonomy? Probably not. Um, could they get some of their core demands met, such as use of Kurdish in schools? Maybe. Uh, that it would be an issue to negotiate, for sure. Um, would they get the right, which they didn't have before, for all Syrian Kurdish uh, people to get passports and nationality? They should. Um, that also is something to be negotiated. These were sort of core Kurdish demands back in 2010 and 2011 when I met with Syrian Kurds. These are the sorts of things I heard, not about we're going to set up a little statelet in uh, northeastern Syria. That was not on their core list of demands. Um, and we don't owe it to the Syrian Kurds to help them set up that statelet. And what about Iran? How would Iran be um, impacted by this change in policy? The Iranians right now are not fighting the Americans. Uh, in fact, the Americans are bombing the Iranians, but the Iranians aren't hitting the Americans in Syria. Um, and in some places, our forces are within 20, 30 miles of each other. 
um, certainly within uh, range to fight if they wanted to. The Iranian presence in Syria does threaten Israel. The Iranians are bringing in um, uh, advanced missile parts, very accurate missiles, and uh, that could hit Israel from Syria. And not surprisingly, the Israelis are reacting very badly and are regularly bombing uh, Iranian positions in eastern Syria, very close to where the Americans are. I suspect there's some cooperation between the Americans and the Israelis on this, but it's not discussed. Uh, the Americans are not fighting Iran in Syria. The Israelis are doing that, and the Israelis can continue to do that after the Americans leave. Uh, it's not necessary for the Americans to be in Syria in order to contain the Iranians. The Iranians, um, to the extent they're having problems in Syria, it's coming from the Israeli Air Force, not from the Americans. The other thing I want your listeners to remember is the Iranian-Syrian alliance goes back 40 years now, back to the Iran-Iraq war, where Syria was the only Arab country that supported the new Iranian uh, Islamic Republic against Saddam Hussein's Iraq. They've had a military alliance for 40 years. To say that uh, if the Americans leave, Iranian influence in Syria will go up is missing a much, much bigger context and uh, is erroneous. And another question that I guess I have, and maybe a lot of listeners might have, is if following this plan, um, Russia and Turkey managed to stabilize the region, would U.S. interests be threatened or undermined as um, U.S. would leave and then Russia would then seemingly be the main, quote unquote, great power actor there? As I said before, Syria is not a key American national security interest. What are our key interests in the Middle East? Counterterrorism. We don't want terrorists to attack us from the Middle East. Don't want another 9-11. And uh, still, in 2021, uh, oil supplies from the Persian Gulf are vital to the world's economy. And since there's an international price for oil, um, were those oil supplies from the Persian Gulf uh, to suddenly stop? world oil prices would skyrocket, and there would be a consequential rise on American energy prices, uh, which would hurt the American economy. If you look at those two key interests, maintaining a military force in eastern Syria is not vital to either interest. If the Russians fight ISIS with the Syrian government in eastern Syria, that meets an American national security interest. It's enough. And we want the Turks to shut down that border so that people can't infiltrate from Syria through Turkey to the West. Um, It does not affect the American interest in uh, Middle East energy supplies reaching world markets. Uh, American troops are not helping uh, secure energies, uh, commerce in world energy supplies from the Persian Gulf sitting in eastern Syria. They're very far from the action. And you also mentioned that Russia, who has experience in equipping and currently oversees pro-Damascus fighters, should, in this new policy, create a new core that brings together the SDF and al-Assad Syria. Since 
the Assad government has been fighting against SDF for years. How can Russia realistically bring together these two groups under the same banner without further bloodshed? Well, here, Julia, there's a misunderstanding. Mm. The American-backed Syrian Democratic Forces do not, I underline this, do not fight the Assad government. In fact, in fact, in 2015, when the Americans began to help the YPG militia and and the associated air groups with it, um, the Americans insisted that in return for any help, uh, the fighters agreed not to fight the Assad government. It is against the law for uh, the American government to arm fighters against another sovereign government. And so then the YPG militia had not been fighting Assad before. In fact, they had cooperated with Assad in 2011 and 2012, 2013. So they were happy to sign that pledge. Um, did the Americans arm groups against Assad? Yes, they did under the CIA. It was a covert program. Uh, but this overt, overt Pentagon program cannot violate international law. And so the SDF does not fight Assad. Uh, and as I mentioned, this Kurdish militia uh, often cooperates with them. Just to give you an example, the Syrian secret police to this day, maintain open offices, not very secret, uh, open offices in some of the major cities in this Syrian Kurdish statelet. Uh, they don't fight each other. The question is how, how do you integrate this pretty well-organized Syrian Kurdish militia faction, the YPG, and associated Arab fighters into a broader pro-government military uh, under Damascus control. That's that's a negotiation, but the Russians have actually set up several brigades of former opposition fighters, equipped them, pay them, uh, and in many cases, the Russians actually lead them uh, with the concurrence of the government in Damascus, government that's pretty weak to begin with. Um, the Russians could do this with the Syrian Democratic Forces. It's The Russians are nimble enough politically and diplomatically, to be able to do that. And to kind of wrap us up, the history of Syria could have dr dramatically been different today if perhaps a few things had lined up differently in 2013. So I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, if the Obama administration had launched airstrikes against al-Assad in 2013 after the chemical attack, would Syria be in a worse or a better position? So it's a great question. And uh, there are, as you might imagine, a lot of opinions about this. Um, I would recommend to your listeners uh, Phil Gordon's uh, new book, uh, Losing the Long Game, it's called. Phil was a uh, Obama administration official in the National Security Council. Uh, Phil is now Kamala Harris's deputy national security advisor. And in his book, uh, which basically writes about uh, the Obama administration's policies in the Middle East, um, he thinks that an airstrike in response to the 2013 chemical weapons attacks uh, would not have changed the course of the war. He said, unlikely that Assad ever would have negotiated. And to the extent the American airstrikes threatened Assad uh, with collapse, the Russians and the Iranians would have escalated 
their support on behalf of Assad. That's a pretty strong argument, I have to say. Um, others, such as uh, uh, the United States Institute for Peace down in Washington, uh, people like Dana Struhl, who's now an official at the Pentagon, and uh, Monia Kubian, a senior researcher at USIP, um, have argued that the failure to do the airstrike uh, in 2013, after the, the big chemical weapons attack in August 2013, um, was in a sense a, a lost opportunity to coerce Assad to negotiate and to reestablish an international norm against chemical weapons use. Um, these kinds of arguments about what could have happened uh, and what would have been the impact, there's no way to know for sure. My own sense is uh, that it would have weakened the Assad regime had the strikes been big enough, but they would have had to be pretty big. Uh, there were a lot of officials in Damascus running for cover, sending their families out of the country, um, moving out of the capital to their uh, seaside villas or such things, taking cover. Uh, they expected a big American response, and it never came. Uh, certainly, we did not reestablish the norm against chemical weapons use. The Assad government has been using chemical weapons, including nerve agents, um, uh, regularly since that 2013 American-Russian deal to remove the CW. Great book just published on this by a journalist named uh, Toby Wark called Redline. I'd recommend it very highly to your readers. Very readable. All right, Ambassador, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.